just another waitress. When all else fails, it's never too late for a comeback in the theater. San Francisco seemed a likely enough place to accomplish such a goal, but when I set out to do so, I was confronted with a cynical, if not completely indifferent, market. It soon became painfully apparent I would have to supplement my income with work in the restaurant business. I secured a position at a place in the financial district appropriately called Mr. Toad's. The job lasted 10 days. I dropped and broke three dozen crystal flower holders. It took more than a few years and a few restaurants before I actually developed the art of retaining a job. By then, so much of my time was preoccupied with part-time work, political awareness, and occasional dating that my career in show business was once again cast upon the back burner. Though this saddened me, I really didn't know what to do about it. I had a lot of acquaintances and spent a good deal of my time at the cafe floor trying to figure out what made all of them so full of self-importance and me feel like such a nobody. I quickly came to prefer the political tables to the artistic ones due to this fact, and I found their conversations intriguing. I longed to do something great, but couldn't think what? Sexual politics? Leftist law? Grassroots organizing against the bomb? What, pray tell, was the significance behind such jabber? I tried, on the condescending advice of a couple of cappuccino drinkers, to read Marx, Nietzsche, and Mao. Though I was very much in favor of socialism, the death of God, and Chinese smocks, I had great difficulties with their publications. I normally read newspapers for their entertainment sections alone. These periodicals didn't even mention such bourgeois luxury. I needed to start simply and at my own back door. I heard that a new newspaper was starting up in the gay community, and I volunteered to do an article for them. My first assignment was to interview two women from the Parents of Gays Association, something I didn't even know existed. The interviews were full of touching anecdotes. I was completely charmed by the women I talked to, how unlike mother dear they were, supportive, up on the issues, and willing to fight for social change. During our last session, one of them asked me if I had told my parents I was gay. Well, no. They never speak to me again if I did. Besides, they know it's just something we don't discuss. Do they speak to you much now? The usual, Christmas, my birthday. Could your relationship be much worse? I never thought of it like that. Well, imagine for a moment if every gay person were to tell their families, if every parent, cousin, aunt, and uncle had to deal with it. Society would change. It would simply have to be it would simply have to because there wouldn't be anyone left untouched. That evening I wrote a short note home confirming my mother's lifelong suspicions to be true. Within a week I received a reply. How close they felt to me thanks to my brave honesty. They wanted me to come visit, suggested we have a week at the lake. They even sent a plane ticket. I went, wide-eyed. I arrived July 17th, 
the hottest day of the year. That familiar humidity greeted its lost son with the enthusiasm of a dead gardenia. My parents had moved into a tiny condo as my father's business luck had jinxed. He was working for an insurance company for a third of the salary he had grown used to. My mother had learned to hate him. She hated his lost drive, and she hated his indifference to losing it. She'd even been secretly toying with the idea of divorce, but felt their combined debts would mean financial bankruptcy, which was then out of the question. While at the lake, we all did our best to pretend that none of this was going on. My mother even conceded it was fine for me to be gay, so long as I didn't talk about it, never brought a lover home, and isn't it about time you got a real job? My father said it was none of his business. I quickly came to realize that the visit had not been arranged on account of me. It was Mother's dear, it was Mother Dear's last attempt to pull us all together before we finally fell apart. It was a desperately manipulated memorial. I spent most evenings in the porch swing with my little sister, swatting mosquitoes and talking. She said she thought our parents had gone completely crazy, that they rarely exchanged a civil word and hadn't shared a room for several years. I asked her why she still lived with them. Because it's cheap? On my last night, I went into the kitchen and found my mother crying over the dishes. I asked her what was wrong. She said, I'm just miserable as I can be, and I don't see any way that's ever going to change for me. That doesn't make it very easy to get up in the morning. I'd just as soon be dead. She asked if she could speak to me confidentially and told me she was having an affair. What did I think about that? I said, I thought that was good for her. But you've got no morals. Well, life isn't black and white now, is it? The rules don't necessarily work, not even for you. I'm almost ready to believe that. Look at you. You haven't got a thing to call your own, yet you seem happier than any of us. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm doing what I should be. She rolled her eyes, as only mother dear can do. There's something else I want to tell you. It's about your father. He has a thing. What do you mean, a thing? A funny thing he likes to do. He's had it since before we were married. He told me about it even then, and I accepted it. I even participated in the little fantasy, but not anymore. He's grown careless since he's had all this job trouble. Last spring, your sister walked in on him. She probably never would have noticed anything had I not made such a scene, but I cannot have that. I just cannot. My father, it seemed, took pleasure in emulating my mother. He simply liked to dress up. That's nothing to be so concerned about, I said. Even Ann Landers will tell you that. I am not Ann Landers, am I? Lately, I've felt certain it has to have something to do with the way you are today. Why do you think I took you to see that psychiatrist when you were six years old? I was so scared even then when you wouldn't play ball like all the other boys. The missing link to my childhood suddenly fell into place. The source of her great fear for my masculinity had something to do with her guilt over playing a willing part in my father's little ritual. It seemed so petty, so petty and so small. I had come home and faced my mother with a truth. 
A circle was now complete. Whether she knew it or not, she had very little power over me. As I stood there looking at her, I asked myself what was left. What was there beyond the blown up and distorted figure my mind had made her into all these years? What I saw before me was a very sad woman from a strict place in a disillusioned time. She had been bred for a world that no longer existed, if it ever did. Odd, a reality that included the Great Depression and the Second World War had no place for real life and consequential feelings. No, they were to happen in the shadows, where what was expected could not be disturbed. She was more alone in her grief than anyone I had ever known. It was difficult to let myself see her as pitiful as she seemed. I closed my eyes and held her as she cried.